Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology, based right here out of Santa Barbara. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of That Anthro Podcast. This week we have a UCSB alumni, Megan Carney, sorry, Dr. Megan Carney. She's a sociocultural anthropologist who works on a wide variety of issues, including food security and uh, migration, as well as the biopolitics of food. So this is an extremely interesting episode on so many levels, both on the ethnographic research that she does. She has, you know, some techniques and some outlines for how she does that. But also we talk about our time in Japan We talk about her new book, how it was harder for her to write this second book on migration in Italy than it was actually for her to write her first book on um, food insecurity in Santa Barbara. So Megan has a lot of very interesting subjects to talk about in this episode. And I just want to remind everyone to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Um, Megan also has a... Twitter for the Center for Regional Food Studies that you guys can follow. Yeah, let's get into the episode. So, Dr. Kearney, I understand you're a fellow gaucho. I'd love to hear about your journey to, you know, completing your MA and PhD at uh, UCSB, but also like what you know, area of anthropology you did pursue your graduate studies in, because as we all know, the anthropology field is super wide ranging. So you could just give us a bit of context about, you know, your graduate studies at UCSB to start us off. Well, I think, you know, the story starts a bit farther back, uh, what what took me to anthropology in the first place. And um, so I, I grew up in California, actually, I'm originally from Santa Cruz. And I, um, like many, um, you know, West Coast kids with lots of ambition, I thought I have to go to some prestigious institution on the East Coast um, Mm -hmm. for my undergrad. I need to escape California and this bubble that I grew up in. And um, anyway, I ended up at NYU for the first year and a half and was, uh, became very disillusioned with that kind of earlier vision I had of what college should look like. Well, and, and also I, NYU is such a disconnected campus. Like it's very right. decentralized. Yeah. It's basically living as a young person in a city, um, mm-hmm. less, uh, the sort of like traditional college experience. Um, NYU is a great school, but I couldn't justify the price tag long-term. And I, um, I also just didn't really find my people. Um, I'm sure maybe if I had waited it out a bit longer, that would have been different. But in any case, I decided to to 
come back to the West Coast and I did um, the remainder of my degree at UCLA, which was really a great choice because they have an excellent anthropology program. So I was there for undergrad, but you know, I, I didn't really know anything about anthropology prior to college. I think it was my mom who at one point suggested this is going to be very sound very cliche, uh, but I had like a passion for learning other languages and kind of seeing the world through other languages and also travel. Mm -hmm. um, I had, you know, strong aspirations of, of traveling and exploring and experiencing other parts of the globe. Um, so my mom just kind of put out there, like, you should really consider maybe taking some courses in anthropology and having no idea what that was. Um, between my time at NYU and UCLA, I took some courses in anthropology at UC Santa Cruz, uh, because I, as I mentioned, I grew up there and I had taken courses there in, in high school. And Carolyn Martin Shaw was the instructor um, for Intro to Cultural Anthropology. And I didn't, and I didn't really know what to expect, but within like the first few class sessions, I was like, I found, like I've, I've found my people or I have found, I found my place, I suppose. Um, I've just always been fascinated by, as, as many anthropologists are, like trying to understand the meaning of our own existence. Like what does it mean to exist? And then what meanings do we as humans attach to our existence? And then wedding that to my own kind of longstanding activism in social justice, like it just seemed like a perfect fit. Um, and so, yeah, from there, uh, after, well, at UCLA, I did the anthropology honors program, which was really cool. It was like a miniature masters, basically in, mm -hmm. anthrop in anthropology, there was, um, you know, a whole curriculum structured around designing your own research, um, applying for funding, carrying out field work, doing data analysis and writing a thesis. Mm -hmm. So that was like, you know, that exposed me to what a graduate program could look like um, because obviously graduate school is a really big decision of you know pursuing a PhD is not mm -hmm. to be taken lightly so especially there, going like straight into it like you did your master's and yeah. PhD at the same school like as I'm going through that yeah. process it does require a certain level of undergraduate commitment that you kind of show before you even apply to those PhD programs you have right. to have that experience right, right. Um, yeah, and then you also just uh, alluded to yourself, like giving yourself some time between not just like going straight necessarily from undergrad into graduate school. Um, so I, I took a I took a year off and was uh, uh, an assistant language teacher through the JET program, the Jap Japanese Exchange Teachers Program, oh, and lived in Japan so for a year. Awesome. Yeah, it was a it was an awesome experience. That was back in 2006. No, I was going to say, okay, so I was in Japan for a year. And then it, while I was away applying to grad programs. So I went into sociocultural anthropology as my specialization. Um, so what I had proposed uh, for my PhD research when I was, I think when I was applying in the first place, um, I had just been living in Los Angeles, uh, you know, year and a half prior. And at the time, around the time that I graduated from UCLA, um, the uh, South Central Farm, sort of the significant landmark that unfortunately is no longer there in South Central Los Angeles, but 
the controversy around the use of this space. So it was in this historically um, uh, black and um, immigrant neighborhood. And it was this vacant lot that had been cultivated into this like urban oasis where um, especially um, Latinx farmers were um, cultivating food to feed their families. And it's just this like beautiful green space in the middle of industrial gray LA, very urban LA. And so my last year at UCLA, um, if it, and for folks who are interested, there's a great documentary that kind of gives the history and what ultimately happened, the legal battle around this space um, and the myriad injustices that ensued um, as part of seizing this space. But there's a documentary called The Garden. I highly recommend it. I use we'll it often it in my teaching. Yeah, um, it was an award-winning film. Um, but that was all happening the last year that I was at UCLA. And I was um, involved at the time with um, E3, uh, or also known as the California Student Sustainability Coalition chapter at UCLA. Um, so E3 stood for Ecology, Equity, and Economy. Um, and we were doing this sustainable foods initiative. And as part of that initiative, we had um, proposed and um, uh, broke ground for an organic garden on site at UCLA at the rec center to be used by students. Um, so we were, you know, kind of on the margins of what was happening more broadly in Los Angeles at the time and specifically with the South Central Farm. Um, and so I was, I was starting to get really involved, exposed to and involved in kind of broader food, urban food justice issues, I'll say. Yeah. So um, I proposed graduate research on, on what happened with the South Central Farm and where people went to afterward, um, because ultimately the farm, that space was seized by the original like owner of the property and they bulldozed the whole site. Um, and I actually, even to this day, it might still just be an empty lot of dirt, um, which is just so Sadly not that but... surprising for the state of LA. Like I think anyone who has like a, a nice view of LA in their mind, like it's really just, especially now, like it's, I feel like LA is just a city that's like on a rapid decline. <laughs> yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, but there's some interesting proposals. I know um, I'm not like, really, uh, I, I'm not staying too apprised of um, city politics, but I do know in a recent issue of National Geographic, at least, there was um, an article, a feature about uh, green space and specifically the uneven distribution of tree and canopy layers throughout Los Angeles and um, the these patterns of uh, disparity between wealthier neighborhoods and more tree cover and more impoverished neighborhoods that have almost zero tree, tree cover. And so obviously this is a climate justice issue um, looking long-term and the effects of extreme heat in an urban mm -hmm. environment, which, which neighborhoods will be more vulnerable to increasing temperatures. So mm -hmm. um, the city I, I think is, has a project underway to reforest much of the greater urban Los Angeles area um, to try and uh, mitigate some of the yeah. effects of increasing temperatures. 
Well, hopefully that'll be a successful initiative. Yeah. I feel like I'm going on many different tangents. No, that's the point uh, of the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's great. It's fun. I, so really I was, I was interested in food insecurity. Um, and there's, there's a long history of anthropology and anthropologists involved in policies dealing with food and agriculture and specifically food insecurity. Um, so I was engaging with, with that literature um, and sort of deeper history. Uh, and, you know, I, I didn't end up doing my field work in LA uh, because there was just so much, there was so much that was compelling about Santa Barbara County yeah. where I was already living. And we can, we can get to that. Um, but for folks who don't know, um, Santa Barbara County, it ha- has for, for a long time, it um, reported some of the highest rates of food insecurity in the state of California. And paradoxically, um, it is also one of the most agriculturally productive regions of California. Um, And so it seems counterintuitive that this region that has such an abundance of agricultural products uh, is also experiencing some of the worst uh, rates of food insecurity, not only in California, but in the country. particularly in immigrant populations, which, you know, Santa Barbara also can, you know, has a very high number. I don't know how we compare to other states or other counties like in the area, but we do have a very high immigrant population. Right, exactly. So uh, there's uh, also a long history of labor migration, what used to be seasonal labor migration prior to 9-11 and the policies that followed 9-11 of, you know, intensified border militarization and surveillance uh, that made it much more difficult for folks to, to cross the border on a seasonal basis. Uh, and it has also just uh, put many more migrants' lives at risk each year mm-hmm. who are having to um, cross the border uh, illicitly. Um, but yeah, there's, you know, that Santa Barbara County's primary economic activities are agriculture, tourism, and then at the time my field work construction was also up there. I, um, these are seasonal industries that employ, Mm -hmm. you know, heavily depend on uh, so-called surplus migrant labor. And uh, so, yeah, you do have, um, there's been that demand in the labor market. And then also it's, an incredibly expensive place to live. So you have very high rates of poverty for those who are who are earning substandard wages, not mm-hmm. livable wages. And then um, I suppose we'll get more into this when we talk about, you know, your first book, which you did the research for in Santa Barbara, but I actually don't know, are primarily the immigrants from Mexico or other Central and South American countries in Santa Barbara? There's a... Uh, a large population of um, people of Mexican descent, mm-hmm. and many of them are also of indigenous descent, um, mm-hmm. so indigenous groups in Mexico. And then there is um, there is a number of um, Central American migrants as well. So in my own fieldwork, I um, you know I worked with migrant women from Mexico, um, 
and then Central America, the countries the women were from and for my work, Honduras um, and Guatemala. Very interesting. I know that's something that, um, you know, it makes up a really big part of, you know, Santa Barbara County and I went to high school in Ventura. And so even just driving, you know, around Ventura and Oxnard, it's really like the whole, you know, central coast is so agriculturally productive. Um, it really is. You're right. Yeah. It's really, um, crazy almost just, just the insecurities. So I, I'm really interested because, you know, you were talking about your, um, social justice activism and, you know, wanting to connect that to your work. Was there a particular experience or kind of igniting factor for that? Or was it more just like looking around the world and being like, I can help, you know, some of these problems that are uh, pretty pervasive? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. And I think, it, I think it's hard to trace back to like a particular moment. Uh, are you asking specifically about kind of what catalyzed my research in Santa Barbara, like the decision to, to focus there instead of somewhere I'm, else? I'm more curious in general, because I think, you know, from our, you know, talk right off the bat, you said that social activism and connecting that to your yeah. work was very important to you. So I, I'm just yeah. curious kind of where that mindset came in, in, in mm. prioritizing that in your work, because, you know, not everyone is prioritizing that in their PhD or in their, you know, in talking about that in their books. Yes, I think because you're a sociocultural anthropologist, there's a bit more of that. But yeah. I'm, yeah, I was just curious to see kind of where that um, inspiration came from. Yeah, oh, I imagine it, it's come from many different experiences over my lifetime, um, you know, different influences in my life and, uh, you know, some of the, the traumas I was exposed to as a child and injustices that I observed uh, growing up. But I, I give a lot of credit or I attribute a lot of my kind of like social justice motivation to, to be really um, involved in social justice movements and activism to growing up in a place like Santa Cruz, which people, you know, I'd say in the, there's like a popular mindset of Santa Cruz being a very progressive place, mm -hmm. although that doesn't, that doesn't, doesn't necessarily hold true today. It's not like uh, you know, Santa Cruz has a lot of problems. There's a lot of inequality in Santa Cruz. And, um, you know, I think there are many like well-intentioned liberals in Santa Cruz who also are not aware necessarily of their own biases um, and of how in some ways they're, they're stymieing progress towards what I would call like a, a future that is actually liberatory for all that is not just kind of pushing one vision of what a socially just world might look like, but um, is in embracing, you know, many different visions, but also, um, you know, much more, I'd say abolitionist. I think it was, you know, I'm, I'm a product of the different environments, right? That I've yeah. been exposed to and the different relationships that I've had and mentors and um, I've had some really, I had some really incredible teachers um, from elementary school on, you know, who have uh, kind of shaped my orientation to the world and how I think about my work as a scholar. You know, I'm not afraid to um, call myself a scholar activist. There's there's a lot of debate around you know, like 
how involved scholars should be in activism and how much of our work should be kind of serving um, uh, different, different visions of the world or pushing forward political agendas. Um, but I, I, I just, I, you know, and, and, and that debate tends to center around claims of science being entirely objective, right, and unbiased, mm -hmm. which we just, we just know isn't, isn't true. Yeah, that's, science. that's not our job as anthropologists. Like, maybe that's biologists' job to be completely objective and to, like, look at, you know, like, if they're in the lab, but our job as anthropologists, like, is to use our is to use our understanding of humanity and the world like for those you know for what we're passionate about which you know in this case happens to be like our earth deteriorating in in social political and environmental ways right right um science does not exist in a vacuum it is no. part of society it is a social you know institution it is shaped by environment politics economy um social and institutional arrangements. You're exactly right. So, um, so acknowledging that, right, that that yeah. is like, that science is predicated on these other values and systems that are socially constructed, it, it's never not biased in some way or um, lacking in objectivity, right? There's always some sort of subjective component of science. So I think um, to, to not utilize the, the, the forms of knowledge production that we engage in as anthropologists for kind of serving these, um, these, these visions of social justice or just a, a more just world, equitable world is um, to, to negate our responsibility um, and our ethical obligations, not only to anthropology and to um, the academy, but to society yeah. and what it means to be human. Definitely. Definitely. Well, all I have to say is that season two of the podcast, man, oh, you're the third person I'm recording with. And these episodes are coming in hot with like the issues that I care like deeply about. And I just think like this second season is just going to be like, someone told me on the, you're the woke anthropology podcast. I was like, oh, thank you. Why? Thank you. <laughs> you should absolutely take that as a compliment. Yeah, no, a hundred percent did. It was from a listener. So it was very well intentioned. I just was like, oh my God, I love that. So, you know, we've, we've skirted around it. So let's just dive right in. You know, your first book was some ethnographic work that you did in Santa Barbara um, across, you know, two years. And feel free to correct me if any of this is wrong. Um, it was published in 2015 and it was entitled the, the Unending Hunger, Tracing Women in Food Insecurity Cross Borders. So you interviewed women migrants from Mexico and Central America in Santa Barbara. So how did this project come to be? And then we can break down kind of, you know, what you were exploring in the book. Yeah, I, as I said, I decided to focus my research uh, for my PhD in Santa Barbara because, well, in Santa Barbara County, because uh, at the time I was volunteering with the food bank of Santa Barbara County and uh, learning through that work that rates of food insecurity in the region were were higher than neighboring counties and some of the highest in the state. And uh, that many of the, the clients of the food bank were people of undocumented status because they were ineligible for other forms of food assistance. Well, you know, I learned through uh, documenting women's lived experiences of food insecurity that it wasn't just about 
not being eligible for those programs, but also some of the suspicions women had, women of a migrant background had about those programs like SNAP, um, the Supplemental Nutrition mm. Assistance Program, formerly known as food stamps or WIC, programs that were federally sponsored that might target them um, and, and surveil them and uh, impinge on their aspirations to obtain uh, a path to citizenship or some mm -hmm. form, some form of uh, formal status, and for, not just for themselves, but also for their families, and maybe even children who were not yet in the U.S. who uh, were in their countries of origin. So I, yeah, there were there were kind of a number of factors that uh, converged and led me to doing my fieldwork in in the county and. Uh, looking at sort of the broader debate too around food security and food insecurity, it's really important to understand. And I think this is this has been underscored for many of us who were prior to the pandemic maybe unaware of how pervasive food insecurity and hunger are in the United States. But it's really important to understand that food insecurity is not some naturally occurring phenomenon. It's not like mysterious. We the un, there are very clear political underpinnings of food insecurity. Food insecurity mm -hmm. is not a some Malthusian problem, right? Of like finite resources. We have plenty, very sufficient supplies of food to feed the population, but it is politics and economic inequality, social inequality that shapes uneven access to that food and also translates to uneven life chances. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, um, my field work consisted of, um, I, I recruited um, 20, 25 key informants, um, women of a migrant background who um, were residing in various parts of the county and had experienced food insecurity and were either utilizing or had previously utilized some form of food assistance, either through a private program, such as a food bank or a food pantry, or through a public program like mm -hmm. SNAP or WIC. And I, you know, I'm, I identify as a sociocultural and medical anthropologist, so I was really interested in people's lived experiences, but also how those, how those lived experiences of food insecurity and the stress, the, the chronic stress associated with food insecurity, living it day to day, translated um, in terms of their health outcomes, um, mm -hmm. both, both mentally or psychologically and emotionally and also physically, um, and, and how that kind of affected their relationships with others and their families and more broadly their extended social networks and communities, the surrounding mm -hmm. community. You know, the book discusses, I, I put forward kind of these uh, these parallel concepts, one, the, what I call the biopolitics of food insecurity. So going back to what I said previously about that food insecurity has political underpinnings. Mm -hmm. There's this uneven distribution of resources, specifically food that creates the conditions of food insecurity. And then the biopolitical project of food security, food security in quotations, because these, these are concepts Kind of high level concepts, food security and food insecurity. Uh, I call them, I say high level because panels of experts have gathered across 
many different spaces over time to define them mm -hmm. and devise tools for measuring them. So there's, you know, there's, if you go and Google food security or food insecurity, you're likely to come across some of these definitions, one mm -hmm. of which is the USDA, the Department of Agriculture, they, they have the definition, food security being defined as access to nutritious and culturally appropriate food for an active and healthy life. Uh, and critics of that concept and its definition, for instance, those who align more with a vision of, of food sovereignty or right to food, like myself, I, I you know, uphold um, right to food um, legislation. You wanna just break sovereignty. that down really quickly what that is? Cause I think people yeah. would be interested to know. Yeah, yeah. Well, in, in short, we're we're dissatisfied, right, with food security being like an end goal that we're working toward. That's that's not sufficient. Um, okay. So food sovereignty and, and right to food. Currently, the U.S. does not recognize right the uh, food as a human right. It is not part of our national policy. However, there have been recent attempts after in since the pandemic began um, to introduce right to food legislation at the level of municipalities and also statewide. Um, but right to food um, is working against these other configurations of food in our society. So food has been commodified and that's part of the reason why we have such high levels of food insecurity, not just in the US but globally. Um, because food has been made into a site of generating profits. Mm -hmm. Transnational corporations have much more control over the food system than governments and people do. Um, and then food has also been weaponized as a site of social control. So when you, for instance, hinge people's eligibility for food assistance on adhering to like a set of requirements that they have to um, provide proof or documentation of, like for instance, having citizenship, or maybe have having a job or a source of income or having children. Um, Even as a student you, for the process going through as a student, like there's so much that I'm dealing with right now for, you know, SNAP benefits and just like, it's so hard even to get through like that process. Exactly. And it, so it's, it's not a, it's not a space that affords people dignity and respect mm -hmm. or empathy it, it, or empathy. It is about constructing deserving subjects who, right, it, and when, it, when we talk about like deserving this, we're really talking about various forms of social control that we're mm -hmm. trying to construct a certain type of citizen or citizen subject. And those who adhere to that uh, sort of set of criteria then can um, also access food, right? Or these, 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 these resources that are essential to life itself. So right to food is, is you know, an explicit challenge to that way of thinking um, that food should not be a commodity, that it is not a commodity, that it's mm -hmm. a human right, um, and that people should have control over it. It should not be controlled by corporations or private interests that are seeking to make a profit, and that all are entitled to food um, and should have dignity um, in, in how, you know, food is produced um, distributed, consumed, et cetera. Mm -hmm. 
building on that topic of empathy, you know, conducting ethnographic field work, you really have to, I'm sure, um, have some kind of key things that make those interviews and those life history, you know, interviews where you have to ask questions, probably and sometimes very difficult questions, very emotional questions, you know, of these people as, you know, in your role as an ethnographer, what do you think is important in capturing those really intense experiences? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't really elaborate on the methods that I used for that research, but thank you. Thank you for mentioning some of them. Yeah. Life history interviews and um, at, at later phases of research, I was doing focus groups, which were really more like community dialogues. Focus mm. groups feel so clinical in a way. Um, community dialogues are a bit more organic and um, sort of defined by the community itself. So, um, and then I was doing participant observation. I was accompanying women in various aspects of their daily lives, like trips to the grocery store, making mm -hmm. meals at home, picking up kids from school, walking with them home from school or other places. Yeah, this, this research didn't just like surface overnight. There was definitely several months of establishing my presence in places where women had pre kind of pre-existing relationships founded on trust. So going through community organizations that worked intimately with communities um, that were experiencing poverty in Santa Barbara, but also communities that had a high number of undocumented folks, you know, being very transparent about why I was there, even being associated with the university, there that that can raise suspicions. Like, well, what are you going to do with that information? Um, and especially a public university as well, um, that presumably has some connection to government officials um, or public officials. So it took it definitely took time. Um, and I I kind of had the luxury as already being a resident, a, a student there that I, I could take that time. Um, and I can understand sometimes it's for students doing research, scholars or students doing research in some other remote part of the world, you maybe feel like you don't have as much time to like establish your presence and build that rapport. But it's so important and ultimately it leads to, to just like much higher quality data. Yeah. Um, and also a more, I'd say in my case, you know, I identify as a feminist ethnographer. And so, um, I, you know, no research endeavor is perfect. And I certainly made a lot of mistakes along the way. And there was a lot of trial and error. And I'm constantly being very scrutinizing of my own practices as an ethnographer and how I can um, approximate a more feminist approach to research. Um, but I will say that you know, not imposing an agenda on others from the beginning um, can be one way of helping to facilitate that trust and rapport that's so necessary to building relationships. That it's really important to kind of allow, you, you can go in with, you know, some objectives, of course, and it's very important to understand kind of the literature, the work that's been done before what you're doing and have some questions in mind but also to allow the research to take kind of a, a, sh a shape in life of its own and allow those you're interacting with and learning from to be part of that process of knowledge production and shaping the methodology. I think that's mm -hmm. really, really important. And so 
I think there were ways that I, that there was like mutual identification or similarities between myself and, and the women I was working with, but there were also obviously great disparities as well. Mm -hmm. And, and we cannot deny that there were like in the larger social context, there um, are disparities and sort of power and privilege that also shape research interactions. And you try to overcome some of those, but some, you know, at the end of the day, right, I'm the, I'm the one that's writing up these results. I'm the one publishing the book mm -hmm. um, and I get a lot of the credit and that's, you know, in many ways unfair. So then how do we, how do we mitigate that and create, uh, I guess, more equitable outcomes in the longer term? Like what, what then do I do with that book? What are my responsibilities mm -hmm. after the research is over? These are questions I don't have direct answers or immediate answers, but I'm constantly asking myself and, and my closest colleagues tend to do that as well. Yeah, I think that's really important. Like you said, sometimes, you know, we're not always going to just like ask a question and have the immediate answer of how to fix the problem, but just bringing up that, you know, you, I'm sure you feel still like a responsibility to those people you interviewed absolutely. and their stories and their community. And, you know, acknowledging that is absolutely the first step. Um, yeah. In the process. So. Well, just, and never quiet, like never like refusing to, to stay quiet. Right. Mm -hmm. Like that, that you, you said this, this, yeah, this book was published in 2015 and like, I still continue to um, write op-eds or um, it integrate obviously with my teaching, but others like speaking engagements about the book and about the research that informs that book, but also updating it with like what we know has been happening during the mm -hmm. pandemic um, around food insecurity. Like this, this conversation remains extremely relevant and pressing. And I can't say in the past six years, right, since the book came out that, that any kind of comprehensive, meaningful action has been taken mm -hmm. to address the issues that are the, the primary focus of the book. Yeah. Especially in the realm of immigration and immigration policy, as well as food insecurity in the US. Yeah, it didn't help the president we had after that um, book came out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, um, so, yeah. Um, so I, I want to bring up as well that currently, you know, you're a professor of anthropology at the University of Arizona, which is, I'm sure, a very important part of, you, you know, your current research and what you're doing. Um, how long have you been um, employed there? And then you were mentioning, you know, some of the things that you try to pass on to your grad students and people you mentor. So we can also incorporate that because I know you wanted to talk about that. Yeah, the public voices piece. Um, yeah, I came to the University of Arizona in 2017. Prior to that, I was faculty at the University of Washington. And uh, at the University of Arizona, I am in the School of Anthropology. And I, my, my courses include uh, the Anthropology of Food for undergrads. I teach, um, I created I've created a couple courses since being here. One is food and migration. Um, that's a grad seminar, and I'm excited on teaching that again this semester. I teach a course um, Mediterranean migration, and I'm developing some courses on migrant health in the Americas. Um, when I teach anthropology of food, I kind of alternate. I have two different um, syllabi that I'm really passionate about. One is um, culturing cultures, um, 
And so it's like the anthropology of fermentation. Um, mm. And then the other is um, uh, Black Food Matters, inspired, of mm. course, by um, the recent co-edited volume by Hannah Garth and Ashanti Reese. So in addition to the teaching, and I, I mentor, I have some really outstanding PhD students. They are just stars in their, in their own right. It's such a privilege to be involved in these young scholars lives right and mm -hmm. help kind of shape um their research and 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 life journey exactly yeah um and then I direct a center here it is the center for regional food studies we're we're a small center but um we do kind of different research and programming um related to uh issues here locally in the Sonoran desert and U.S.-Mexico borderland region, but we also um, highlight recent, highlight work across disciplines in the realm of critical food studies. So uh, I just, I say that because a lot of our programming, especially in the last year, has been virtual and open to anyone from anywhere. So I just encourage, That's we have great, a listserv, yeah. um, we have a Twitter account, we send out a bi-weekly newsletter. So if anyone's interested in in our center checking out some of our programming I'd encourage them to visit our website and um, jump uh, subscribe to our listserv that's awesome um like I said before we'll have everything linked um in the episode notes for people to check out because I know sometimes it's like you hear and then you type in can't find so the direct link we'll have below I think I definitely uh, saw that when I was looking into your research and there were some cool write-ups like on you and you know your work and then recently in 2021, you published another book, which congratulations, that's, you know, an incredible accomplishment. I think, I think people um, don't under always understand like the amount of time and work that goes into this book. I'm sure you started this book far before, you know, in probably 2018 uh, or something. And it's just now oh, much, published. much longer, um, much longer. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, And uh, watching, you know, watching one of my professors currently go through the process of getting a book published, I've really taken a whole, you know, obviously it's, it's a different, you know, it's an academic manuscript. It's a bit, it's a bit different than like just a fiction book, but watching that process has just been like truly eye-opening. I have even more respect than I did before. So I'm, you know, oh, sorry, let me tell everyone the name of this book. Um, it's called An Island of Hope, Migration and Solidarity in the Mediterranean. And it specifically focuses on the work you did in Sicily, correct? That's right. So I've been working in Italy actually since I was an undergrad. I studied abroad mm -hmm. there. I minored in Italian. And then the the project that I did for the anthropology honors program at UCLA was was in Italy. So going into grad school, I actually always, you know, had in the back of my mind that I would resume work in Italy. And around the time that I finished my PhD, um, the Arab Spring was happening. Mm. And while migration through across the Mediterranean and specifically the central Mediterranean, which is where Sicily is located has been unfolding for decades. It, it was intensifying in the years around the Arab Spring and the years since. Pretty much upon finishing my PhD, started work immediately in Italy. And I had actually had not yet been to Sicily, but during my, I think it was my first formal research trip back to Italy in 2014, that I visited Sicily and was just like fascinated by kind of the discourses around migration that were happening at the time and mm -hmm. so many different 
organizations that were working on issues related to migration um, in the region and also doing a lot of work at like the national and also EU um, level mm -hmm. to inform changes to policy um, and to advocate for the broader rights and dignity of migrants, people coming across the central Mediterranean. Um, so yeah, this, as I said, I'll, I'll say once this is, yeah, this is my second book and um, I, you know, been the, the actual like research for it I've been doing since 2013. Um, I'll say for listeners who you know have hopes of of publishing the second book, um, right? For those of us who do a PhD, the second book in many ways was much more challenging than the first. Really, and I say that because for your first book, and and I want to give a shout out to um, my editor, Kate Marshall at University of California Press, because she was the one that really helped me to understand how and why this happens. But with your first book, it's usually based on your dissertation. Mm -hmm. And your dissertation, thinking about it, it is, it is a product of all of the interactions, right? But it's accumulation, an accumulation of all the interactions you have with different peers and mentors throughout graduate school. And so once you get to the stage of like translating or reorganizing your dissertation for the purposes of a book, which of course is a very different beast, you still have all of this wisdom that mm -hmm. has been bestowed to you by all of these interactions and, and mentoring relationships. Subsequent books, it's much harder. I mean, you have to be proactive about finding your 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 people, your network, mm -hmm. people you trust to, that you that you can share your work with. That's in progress. Uh, conferences, of course, are important spaces for sharing work in progress. Um, shorter publications can be uh, can provide that opportunity as well. But even still, you don't have you just don't have that same like cohort of people whose explicit purpose is really to scrutinize and push you in mm -hmm. your thinking and, and conceptualization of an argument for subsequent work. So I, you know, it didn't help either that in doing this research and writing this book that I was, I was experiencing so many life transitions. I was going to say you're, you're becoming a mom during that time. Yeah, I got, I got married, moved multiple times across states, became a mom twice, um, was bringing uh, toddlers with me into the field, going very, very pregnant into the field also with a toddler, um, acclimating to a new job. Um, you know, I had over the span of doing this research, I had a couple of postdocs and, and then two different academic positions, working toward tenure, etc. Yeah. So there was so much going on. And in some ways, uh, I'm sure others identify with this feeling as well in anthropology, like your field site and the relationships you have there can also be really grounding spaces. They're like, mm -hmm. yes, they, they change. Things are always changing at your field sites, but um, like going, going back, that feeling of going back and um, kind of continuing with where you left off or as best as possible, continuing with where you left off, mm -hmm. can help to kind of stabilize where a lot of these other transitions are happening in one's life. Um, 
So I feel like I always went back to the field with all the life transitions I was experiencing and doing this work. I was always going back to the field, you know, in many ways, kind of a more mature or different person myself. And that's an advantage of doing long-term ethnographic field work. I saw things in different ways each time I went back um, because things were changing there. And then also I, time had elapsed and there were some pretty significant changes in my own life. Mm -hmm. that doesn't tell you anything about the book itself, but it does give a little glimpse into the behind the scenes, mm-hmm. how it came together, the yeah. cha- specific challenges to it. No, I think that's definitely, I was expecting to hear that the second book was maybe a bit easier to put together just because you've had that experience of going through the first one. But I think it's really interesting to understand in particular, like you said, why it was more difficult. Um, and also congratulations, you know, you've published the second book, you've made it. I'm sure your children are, and, and husband partner, I'm sorry, I should say partner are, you know, so impressed by you. I'm sure they're completely inspired by all the work you've put in over these years. That's nice of you to say, and they're really supportive, all of them, but I think my kids are kind of still too young to understand, mm-hmm. um, right? Like I do, because, you know, I want them to be strong women and yeah. um, have very fulfilling lives. I, I do try to be like, look at this book. Whose name is that on there? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's my, that's my name. Your mom wrote a book. And like, they, I think it, it's still very amorphous to them in their minds, like mm-hmm. what I do. We, we drive by the University of Arizona campus and I'll be like, that's where I work. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you teach? And they instantly think like I'm teaching in a classroom, like the ones that they're in for yeah. Montessori school, like a preschool uh-huh. and um, kindergarten. But Oh, love Montessori. Um, I was a Montessori kid. Love it. Can't say enough good things. <laughs> that's, that's great. And, and, um, I, I, I actually didn't have any um, experience with Montessori growing up. So it's been interest, really interesting for us to, to see what that's like. And um, I think it's been really advantageous for, for both our, our girls. But yeah. uh, you were, where were we in the midst of saying here? Oh, and then I, yes, I give a lot of um, kudos to my spouse who has been very supportive, but he also, he also benefits in, coming to the field with me and mm-hmm. um he really enjoys being in Sicily and um he tries he 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 tries to make things work with his own you know job he's not an academic and mm-hmm. um yeah can be challenging at times my my mom made a joke she's like I just love that wherever you do field work I can come vacation <laughs> it's like oh great yeah yeah I know um, I used to get a lot of flack for that over the years when, especially like in, as an undergrad at UCLA, my peers and, and my professors were all like, oh, poor you, you have to go study food in Italy. I really, mm-hmm. like, that's going to be such a yeah. tough summer. And, uh, and then in the years since too, um, fairly close to the Northern coast of Africa. So it's often the first mm-hmm. place, point of entry yeah. for many people migrating across the central Mediterranean on what um is often described in the media as unseaworthy vessels uh, very rickety unstable boats that are not meant to hold as many people as they carry Mm -hmm. and um and I'm sure listeners are familiar with uh the media coverage of the unrelenting tragedy of migrant deaths at sea which is not just a again like not a naturally occurring phenomenon uh very much uh, the result of indifference and mm-hmm. irresponsibility uh, or refusal to take responsibility by mm-hmm. EU governments. Yeah. Um, 
there's just actually a, a couple of days ago, Palermo's Archbishop. So Palermo is the capital city of Sicily, Sicily being one of Italy's regions. Uh, the Archbishop, Archbishop was making a plea to officials, both Italian and EU officials, to um, provide support to uh, and not penalize these humanitarian organizations that are working at sea in the Mediterranean. Yes, to lead search and rescue missions. Yeah. Uh, because they are constantly doing that work um, at risk of being criminalized yeah. by EU and Italian governments. And um, so this archbishop was, was making the plea for them to not criminalize these organizations to provide support because it is w well known that there are many both mm -hmm. in distress right now and this archbishop called what's been happening a genocide, and I and yeah. I couldn't agree more. Mm -hmm. um, this is this is a, a, a result of um, yeah. structural and social conditions that are not actually tackling the problem um, mm -hmm. and recognizing the rights and dignity of those migrating. There's an Italian film that I watched in my Italian culture class. And I, for the life of me, I want to almost say it was maybe terra firma, but I think that that yeah. terra firma. Terra oh firma. Yeah. That um, is a great visual, um, a visual representation of the struggle. Um, yeah. And a wonderful movie uh, that I was so thankful to have gotten to watch in that class. She showed us a lot of Italian um, films but yeah, no, so that definitely is a great uh, media representation of these fishermen that go out yeah. and then they find these people trying to immigrate, like, let's say from Northern Africa, and they come, they just, they climb onto their ships and they're dealing with that in that it's not that they want to leave them in the water, but that they are then when they get back on land, almost responsible for having taken these people in that were drowning at sea some of which you know some of which with babies and children so definitely yes, very um, so there's actually a law it's the the Bosifini law that has um that penalizes anyone perceived as providing aid mm -hmm. to migrants um yeah uh, and that film terra firma that is that is a beautiful film, mm -hmm. and um, it's set on the island of Lampedusa, which mm -hmm. is a it it is part of the Sicilian region, but it is still quite a distance off, kind of mainland Sicily. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a very small island, island much closer to um, the Tunisian coast. Mm -hmm. We watched yeah. that, and then this is completely different. I just want to tell you that I love the movie Paradise, or it was Cinema Paradiso, or something. It was like. Oh yeah, so, Cinema Paradiso. Yeah. yeah, that was so fun to watch. <laughs> Completely, Italian. much more like uplifting, but <laughs> a cool movie yeah. nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, but no, actually, I appreciate that you're bringing this up. There's such a rich, you know, genre like Italian cinema. There's there's so much richness within yes. that genre. Um, and more recently, there is a lot more um, uh, because of actually some of the organizations that I worked with in Sicily, um, in intention behind bringing um sort of non-italian others right people of a migrant mm -hmm. background into the realm of not just cinema but also other forms of media production as well to shape discourses contemporary yeah. discourses on migration so this is a this is a a field right italian cinema is 
is rapidly changing, maybe not rapidly enough, but to counteract some of the more mainstream and also anti-immigrant discourses yeah. that are frequently in circulation with mm -hmm. the rise of far right uh, politics in much of Western Europe that are you know, fiercely anti-migrant um, or anti-immigration. Yeah. It's really important to put these, to foreground migrants' narratives or people of a migrant background, their narratives in kind of shaping public perceptions of what is happening and why and how to responsibly respond. Yeah, um, this is completely off topic, but it's something that you brought up earlier that I'm really curious to ask you about, especially since the Tokyo Olympics are going on. I visited Japan as well. I had the wonderful opportunity in 2013 to spend time in Tokyo um, on an ex and then do an exchange um, living with the host family um, in on the no northern island, which is Hokkaido, and then in a very yeah. small town called Mombetsu. So I'm curious, I know for me, I've seen some like overhead shots of the Olympics that have had me all reminiscing mm -hmm. on Japan. I was just curious, yeah. you know, what some of the really fun experiences you had were in Japan. It's such a, oh my gosh, the culture, the food, the everything, just amazing people. Everyone's so kind. Like just if you had any fun, you know, recollections from your time there. Absolutely. It's like nearly 15 years ago, but it feels like yesterday in many ways. I was in Wakayama Ten, which is on the Pacific coast um, and of Honshu. And I, so um, the town I was living in was actually sister cities with the town I grew up in, Santa Cruz. And so okay, they that's, that's great. Yeah. To, to yeah. like nourish that sister city relationship, they usually try and recruit people from their sister city. So the, the city was called Shingu, and the population was about 30,000 people. Um, and I was, I was working in a number of like several, several elementary schools and then a couple of middle schools. Um, and it was beautiful, like just a beautiful region of Japan, very far from any urban center. It was like yeah. three and a half hours from Osaka and about four hours from Kyoto. Um, and um, I, yeah, I, I, so my experience was very different from my, some of my counterparts who had mm -hmm. placements in larger cities, Japanese cities, um, because it was a small town and kind of everybody knew of the sister city relationship and a lot of people adults included were like very interested in yeah. getting to know foreigners that came to live in their their small city and so i i just experienced just i i'm i, I sort of cringe at the term hospitality because there's such yeah. a there, there, are, there are a lot of debates within anthropology and other social sciences about kind of the discrepancies in power, um, hierarchies of mm. power that exist that are embedded within relations of hospitality. But in any case, trying, I guess, trying to detach that from mm -hmm. what I experienced. People were just incredibly Ugh. welcoming and generous yes. and wanted to show me like their, their mm -hmm. town, their region. And I was invited to so many people's homes for, you know, home cooked meals, and they would take me on excursions. And I was really passionate about learning Japanese. And um, where great. I was, it really allowed for that, because it was a more rural part of Japan. It's, you know, Japan, there's like the Inaka. Inaka is just broadly like the countryside. And mm -hmm. there's in Japan over the last 
few decades, there's been a depopulation of the countryside and people migrating to urban areas. So increased urbanization and depopulation of the more rural areas. So a lot of my friends were like people who were like nearing retirement and had kids my age. Um, their kids had gone off to the city like to study mm -hmm. at a university or embark on their careers. So it was really interesting. I was interacting with um, people who are much older and wiser than I was and also getting to, uh, yeah, travel and explore with them, go to see their yeah. version of their, their town and yeah. of their world. Yeah. And, and learn Japanese, um, at least conversationally. Yeah. That's well great that you learn Japanese. I was only 12. So that's something I look back on that. I definitely like, I'm sad, but also I just wasn't like that. It, it, it wasn't in the cards for me at that age. But you know, oh my gosh, all the things how you're long saying. Were you, how long I was were there for there? two weeks, and okay. we also had a sister city. So Mombatsu is sister cities with the town that I'm from in Oregon. So it was a delegation from our town. So I actually knew some people, like I had friends that I went with. Yeah. And so, um, like I have this like distinct memory. And first of all, I just want to remind everyone that I was 12. Like I ate everything <laughs> that I was given. But for uh -huh. whatever reason, our first morning meet, so me and my sis, like me and not my sister, my um, com companion from the US, who is my, you know, sister in the house, we we're staying with our host family. Like we were like, okay, before breakfast, it was our first meal in the, in the host family. Cause we'd been in Tokyo, you know, where we were in control of what we were eating. <laughs> and we ate cliff bars before. Cause for whatever reason, we were so nervous for breakfast. <laughs> we go down to breakfast uh -huh. and there are this king, elaborate spread king crab legs cracked mm -hmm. open. There's miso soup. We just look at each other and we're like, we are in heaven. <laughs> like, yeah. Cause neither, you know, we're, we both love all that type of food. So I don't know why we had on that first day, some like weird thing going down, but oh, just the food that I had in the home, let alone the food that, you know, I had from restaurants was just incredible. And then seeing how they use every little leftover and scrap to make soup the next day or to make broth and then you know going and being in the in the house and like the whole room is the shower you know there's no like delineated shower probably because they lived in a smaller home so it's like the sink you're like showering next to the sink and like washing your hair yeah. in the mirror and then we did disappoint them a little bit because apparently Japanese people bathe after they shower and everyone in the family uses that same bath water and so mm -hmm. after we showered, we just came out and they were like, oh, why didn't you take a bath? And we were trying to explain to them like, oh, but we showered, like we're clean, you know? And so just so many really amazing, cause you know, they were our host family. So they were very understanding that we were young kids from America. It wasn't some like, I don't, you understand this. They were amazing, but just so cool. And such an amazing experience that I had the summer before I went to high school. Like, I think I would have been a very yeah. different student and just person if I yeah. hadn't have had such a like formative experience like that, just being literally thrown into another culture that was just oh, amazing. I, I don't have enough amazing things to say about Japan. Like I'll never stop. <laughs> that's, that's so interesting. And um, thanks for sharing that experience actually, because when I was there, a delegation of junior high students came from Santa Cruz to my town mm. and I was part of some of the activities hosting yeah. them. Um, so I had like the opposite, you know, I, I was on the other side of that experience that you had, mm -hmm. right. Of yep. being part of like some of those welcoming and um, those kids had such a blast the whole mm -hmm. time they were there. I think it was like 10 days that they were in town. Um, 
but one I'll never forget. This was like such a formative experience for them and myself. We had this beach day and um, where I was in Japan was actually very close to um, if you ever watched that documentary, The Cove, um, it's, it's not, it's not a, a, you know, a kind of a nice side of, uh, Japan's very mm-hmm. vibrant, like fishing marine culture. Um, it's this, this cove, um, in the town of Taiji where, um, whaling happens and mm-hmm. historically has been happening for a very long time and continues to happen today. And, um, anyway, people might be interested just to, to kind of see what that region of Japan looks like through that film, but trigger warning, there is a, quite a bit of violence against dolphins and other marine life featured in the film, but it's also part of, you know, this, it's mm-hmm. one of the only livelihoods that people in this region have. So, um, but I was going to say, we had a beach day and um, just beautiful coastal region and some of the locals like came, like went into the ocean and came out with these massive octopi wrapped around their arms. The, we were there to gather for a barbecue and they just started like cutting into the octopi for sashimi and yes. feeding it to everyone there. That's like basically live octopus. Like you couldn't have fresher sashimi. And I know there's octopi, octopus no. like are really, really wise creatures. So I don't- It's I, my absolute favorite type of sushi. I don't sushi. want to it was the only word. Either. It was the only word I knew in Japanese when I went was my two favorite types of sushi, octopus and flying fish eggs. My host family was so proud of me, but- um, well, Wow. Um, maybe others have watched the documentary, my, my octopus teacher that, so that's put a different spin a bit on this story for me, but even still the, the junior high kids who were there, some of them then went, ventured into the water with these locals and also caught some of their own octopus and came out with them. So, mm-hmm. um, it was, yeah, quite an exhilarating experience for, for those. I'm there, just kind trying of to imagine catching an octopus with your hands. <laughs> like what that I mean I know what? Actually, if we think about it they're probably really trusting they're so smart they probably yeah. are like thinking this, there's like this you know relationship between mm-hmm. this relationality between humans and octopus um uh yeah but anyway I know I'm I'm torn on both sides I I'm a bit I don't eat any meat other than seafood so I think I may have to have like a come come to reckoning moment where that may have to go but I grew up in a fishing town eating fresh sushi that was you know caught off the boat that morning in Oregon so what town in Oregon Newport Oregon okay it's tiny like but it's dead central coast Mm -hmm. oh my god it's so beautiful I haven't been there like since the pandemic and it's like breaking my heart because it's so stunning but yeah if you think like a lot of people know where Corvallis is because that's where Oregon State is we're Mm -hmm. directly straight on the coast from there like a straight shot so yeah it's a wonderful town my dad my dad's a scuba diver so he goes and catches fresh fish and fresh crab so you know somewhere in my mind I can't delineate the humanity of seafood because it's been such a stable staple um protein and like thing in my life since I was literally born so I can yeah. understand how some people feel that way with cows you know I've been trying to shift my perception uh I don't have a particular position I'm I'm not a vegetarian I'm an omnivore um and but it is a really it's it can be a really sensitive topic mm-hmm. and um I'll just I guess 
defer to my anthropological training. There's many ways, right, of eating. Yeah. Um, and food can symbolize, like, what counts as food and what food symbolizes can mean many different things across many different contexts. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, actually even alluding to that, I guess the intelligence of an animal as a basis for eating it or not eating it. Um, it, it's hard to justify that argument one way or another, especially mm-hmm. when we basically turn a blind eye to factory farming yeah. um, and, and you know, um, animal feeding operations, especially in our own, within mm-hmm. our own nation's borders. So I think that may be why I'm more, because I've been a vegetarian since the seventh grade because I, of environmental and personal reasons. But, um, or sorry, I should say pescatarian. I always say vegetarian because no one knows what pescatarian is. Um, (laughs) Very few people anyway. Um, So I just want to end off the episode with an opportunity to, you know, just a last question. Was there anything that you felt like we didn't have a chance to cover? Anything you want to bring up? Um, Actually, I have to give credit to this. Jonathan Van Ness does a segment like this at the end of his podcast. And I thought, you know, that's a really great way to just end it. Make sure that no one has anything that they're dying to say. So I, I appreciate that opportunity. I realized that, um, yeah, there are a couple things I want to briefly say. I um, didn't really give folks too much insight into what my most recent book is about. And um, I'll just briefly state that it is an ethnography of migrant solidarity efforts in Sicily um, that have been organized in response to kind of these um, various phases of in, in, increased migration across and through the central Mediterranean um, and the kind of broader context of migrant reception in Sicily as it relates to politics of migration in Italy and the EU, as well as the affected states of both um, Siciliani, right, or people from Sicily and, and of migrants or people of a migrant background who both groups have been scapegoated for a number of reasons Mm -hmm. over the last decade, especially um, Sicily in the wake of Italy's um, financial crisis um, back in 2007-2008 that led to an era of um, austerity, economic austerity, um, penalizing regions actually like Sicily. So Sicilians, and there's a longer history or deeper history there as well Mm -hmm. of Sicilians kind of being like labeled as quote unquote the black sheep of both Italy and also Southern Europe and and the EU more broadly. Um, And then migrants, as we are all also familiar with, um, depending, I guess, depending on where you reside in the world, but in the global North, migrants are scapegoated for every social ill, right? And um, and so there's, 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 this has, I argue, has kind of created a certain affinity in the affective state of migrants and people of a migrant background and Sicilians who are advocating um, for uh, sort of broader rights and dignity um, in in the Mediterranean. And Mm -hmm. the uh, migrant solidarity is what I argue is a a radically caring labor that is necessary for the uh, reproduction of society itself. Yeah, I encourage folks to check out the book. And then we had spoken briefly earlier just about, um, I think prior to our, our recording here, but um, about translating one's work for broader audiences beyond mm-hmm. anthropology, beyond other academic disciplines. Um, and I mean, really that 
if we if we want our work to have an impact and connect with people in, in positions of power who make decisions right that affect the lives of us all we do have to know how to effectively translate our work and also feel confident in speaking on behalf of our work and i think that that's mm -hmm. something that we actually there's broad consensus that that is not currently part of the training that we get as academics in graduate mm -hmm. school especially and that there is there is an urgent need for that. So um, the op-ed project was where I kind of got my first exposure to becoming a so-called public voice and learning how to communicate my findings in ways that might resonate more with broader audiences. So writing op-eds or doing podcasts like this or um, you know radio or TV, like invitations from journalists can be very intimidating, especially for those who have like no training. Mm -hmm. So I'm just putting it out there that there's a lot of resources online for both instructors and students who want to familiarize themselves more with the work of translation and how, um, yeah, how we can approach mm -hmm. that work because there are very specific strategies and ultimately it will, you know, lead to, um, I think, better research and better teaching, better scholarship. I agree. Yeah, I think podcasting is definitely um, a newer media way to to get experience in that as well. There are so many, you know, anthropology podcasts. I'm lucky that I there don't exist are. on an island. Like there are amazing people in the field and in every like niche, you know, every niche um, subject area. So there are definitely. Have you heard of the Anthrodish podcast? I have. Okay, I yeah. thought I was like, there's no way she hasn't just given her interests, but I thought if she hasn't, I got to make sure she listens to that. Yeah. One. <laughs> and if you're listening, I'd love to be on your podcast. <laughs> yeah, I actually yeah, no, know the host. Podcast. I know the host and I can totally connect you with her because she's awesome. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah there's the, uh, a colleague and I, Teresa, uh, Mar Teresa Maris and I um, were hoping to do kind of we're, we're working together, um, kind of newer work, but on um, climate and food related displacement and food insecurity yeah. across various migratory contexts that's very interdisciplinary and um, spanning many different geographical areas so we we'd love to have a conversation about that mm -hmm. um, and also actually that's just uh, a plug out there to any other anthropologists perhaps who are interested yeah. in convening with a uh, interdisciplinary group to do more um, policy relevant work on food and climate related displacement and food insecurity. Great. Get well, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. No, thank you so much. This was great, Gabby. It was fun to talk to you.